Welcome to Leadership is No Accident. I'm Andy Robbins, and in each episode, leaders from all kinds of backgrounds share their stories of leading change. We explore what got them started, help them stick with it, and what ultimately fueled them to achieve their goals. We cover all of this and a whole lot more so you too can be a change leader. The phrase leadership is no accident is especially true when it comes to leading one of the most successful major league baseball teams in recent memory. Former San Francisco Giants general manager Bobby Evans developed his career from playing on college teams to managing some of the greatest rosters in the history of the sport. In this episode, Bobby talks about what it took to stay at the top and what makes sports leadership distinct from other professions. Let's hear from Bobby. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Andy. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd like to start and talk about you know, leadership in the sort of field of sports. And you know, you're one of those, those sort of leaders who has been at the helm of an incredibly successful team, you know, the San Francisco Giants, winning three World Series in five years. You know, I'm curious, is there a winning formula? And how, over that time, how do you keep reaching for, for better? How do you maintain that motivation? Well, great question. I mean, I think the, the, the truth is, uh, and I think uh, my boss at the time, Brian Sabian, said it well. I think he actually said it at the uh, ceremony in front of City Hall, in front of I don't know how many thousands of fans after perhaps our first or second championship in, in San Francisco. And he, he said it takes a village, you know, and it does. It takes, takes a lot of smart, good work, people pulling together to make uh, a championship happen. And, you know, things have to go your way, uh, but you do always have to adjust, you know, in a long 162 game season, you know, you have a lot of ups and downs, you have challenges yeah. with injuries and, and changes to your roster and, uh, you know, ups and downs of performance on the field. But I think, you know, one of the things that was really special for us was, was really the steady hand of Bruce Bochy. I think that in many ways, if you look back, I think I've talked with a number of leaders about this, a number of coaches about mm -hmm. this, and how, how ultimately a team reflects back to you characteristics of its leader. Gotcha. And in this case, in, in baseball, it's the manager. You know, the, the team is going to reflect back characteristics of that, of that manager. And one of the characteristics that really exemplified Bochi, specifically in those three championship years, was really the steady hand and calm of his leadership in the dugout day in and day out. Not too high, not too mm -hmm. low. He'd have his moments, you know, where he, he would wear a tough loss. He could save his calmness till he got to his office, and then whoever happened to be visiting after a game might experience some of his frustration. But he, he wore that calm, you know, in that dugout during those championship years in a way that I think the, the team reflected back that calm to him on the field. And I think it helped bring those three championships because of that steady hand. 
But there's a lot of elements. I mean, there's, there's nowhere to, there, there, this could go, I could answer this question for the rest of this podcast, but right. uh, you know, that's one example of good leadership. And I think that uh, again, it does take a village. Yeah. But I'm curious. So, you know, winning one championship, I mean, that's a major achievement and that's very different than winning three, you know, because everybody is out to get you after you've, you know, won your first one. How do you maintain that motivation, that challenge to get better? Well, I think that when you, when you think about it from a player standpoint, um, you know, they have the toughest challenge, um, you know, they, you know, cause there's, there's a physical challenge uh, sure. for them. Yeah. For us in the front office, it's a creative challenge. It's a roster formation challenge. It's a financial challenge. You know, it's measuring your options, you know, and, so uh, there was a hum- tremendous amount of turnover of the roster between the 2010 championship and the 2012 championship. But it, in our case, you know, it, it takes the performance of, of a number of guys, you know, to excel, you know, maybe their career norms or really set a yeah. standard uh, to make the championships happen. But I think that the hunger, you know, is kind of embedded in the characteristics of good team players. I mean, I, I think Pat Lencioni has a great book about, the ideal team player, he talks about how they're hungry, humble, and smart. And mm. people who are hungry are going to work hard and go the extra mile. And uh, that's just a characteristic of, of, of a good team player. And, and I think we were uh, that in the front office, but we were also that on the field. Got it. Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, your results speak for themselves. So certainly that, that hunger and that desire for success and continue to, to work to get better. Really impressive. So, you know, we, with your role in the front office, you know, I, I see that you're in sort of a unique position. And, you know, I, you know, on the podcast, I talk to a lot of generally business leaders. And one of the things that I've been really curious about is how does the corporate perspective of leadership compare to leadership, let's say, on a professional sports team? Do you see that there are a lot of similarities or are there really different flavors of leadership in sports and business? Well, I think the, the culture of your, your company, whether it's a baseball organization or a non-sports related company, I mean, the culture, we hear a lot about culture. I mean, we hear mm-hmm. a lot about culture from, from some of the Silicon Valley companies that have been so successful you know, whether it be Google or VMware, or, or, or there's just a, a good number of companies just have really established a culture where I think you get the best out of their employees. In, in many ways, as a team, we try, to, we try to develop a culture, not only in the clubhouse, but in and around the ballpark, where you get the best out of your best performance out of your on-field personnel, as well as your, your front office personnel. And, and that culture, I think, really, you know, for us was about empowering the people around us, helping people take ownership of their areas of responsibility. Uh, there's a lot of trust given mm-hmm. to the people in their areas of responsibility. You put capable people in leadership roles and then you let them lead. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you speak up and guide them and direct them where you need to, but you also trust them to provide good leadership. But I think a big part of a healthy culture is, is strong, healthy communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also, it's also allowing for conflict to exist and using conflict as an opportunity to get better you know, not to get personal, not to get yeah, cutting, yeah. cutting to, to one another, but to ultimately uh, have conflict that helps you, you know, get through the tough 
circumstances or tough issues uh, and allow you to bring out the creative energy that can help you get better. Yeah, well, I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, as a leadership coach, you know, I come across some teams and they're like, well, we're doing great. We have no conflict. It's great. And it's like, well, uh, I'm a little concerned when I hear that because when you can have the conflict, then you can definitely challenge each other to be at their best. So I'm curious at the Giants, I mean, did that culture sort of em emerge over time? Was it something that you sort of set out as an ideal that you were working towards? I'm just curious about the sort of culture journey. Yeah, I mean, when I, I joined the organization in the early 90s and, mm -hmm. you know, there was a, you know, a, you know, a new ownership group that had taken over uh, the Giants organization. It was definitely an organization from the day I walked in the door that saw themselves as a franchise steward for the city's team, you know, the ah. Giants. And, and so they, they had a, a very humble belief in their role as an ownership group. And I think that humble view of their role set a tone for the organization. And so I was coming from the commissioner's office. I certainly had my, my set of values and beliefs about yeah. how things should be and how people should be treated. But I, I think that, you know, that was a value of the organization in terms of how it treated its community, how it treated its fans, and ultimately how it wanted to treat its employees. I think, it, I think maybe when I first joined, how they treated the employees was a bit aspirational because mm -hmm. they, were, they had just taken over ownership and they had not yet achieved, I think, the level of of care and respect and, and uh, collaboration uh, of their front office that they developed over the years. Yeah. Uh, they're still in their infancy stage, if you will. But, uh, but I was given, you know, uh, you know, a lot of support to, to make sure players felt, you know, a part of, of an organization that was committed to stewarding their career. I mean, we look at players as only having so big of a window to accomplish their goal to get to the big leagues and so long of a window to even stay in the big leagues, Yeah, much less have success. And so, you know, we, we collaboratively looked at the players, you know, future as part of our responsibility to steward and make sure that if we're going to steward their careers, we've got to give them innings, we've got to give them at bats. And we've also got to be honest with them about, you know, what our expectations are and what our, our evaluations are. And so that they can make lifetime decisions sometimes, you know, in, in reality to our reflections. We weren't, we were never perfect at that. And we, there's no way to be perfect at that, but, but it was a, it was a, a symbol of our effort to try to make sure we, we took care of our players. And, and so I think that the influence of our culture, it did evolve. I mean, I think that, you know, there was a big movement of our culture in the clubhouse Mm -hmm. uh, the day Buster Posey stepped in it for the first time. I mean, Buster experienced, you know, as a young player, a bit of the old school thinking about what a, what a young player's role, when the, what it should be when he walks in a clubhouse. And, and I think that when he became the veteran or the, the everyday guy in the big leagues, you know, he wanted a culture where the young players were embraced and where the mm -hmm. young players were poured into and were welcomed and were encouraged to play a significant role. And then, then you add a hundred pence who comes in with, such an incredible energy and passion, you know, young players felt more a part of the club from day one than I think any young players had ever felt. I think it really shifted the culture in the clubhouse, but again, yeah. cult cultures are always changing and evolving, but I think that that was our target was to always make sure that people felt valued. Gotcha. I got it. And I'm sure, you know, with them feeling valued there, then there's a much more stronger likelihood of them performing at their best. No doubt. And, and we also, yeah. part of our values were to 
try to eliminate as many distractions for them, you know, being a, an organization that cares about the families by us doing what we could to care about player families, you know, it made the players less concerned about it. When they put on that uniform, they could focus on the duties on the field and they didn't have to worry about where their families were getting parking or sit, sitting or, or whether there was a space sure. for them to go in the event the young children needed attention or, you know, so there's a, you know, a lot of effort on our part to try to eliminate distractions for, for them. Yeah, you know, and I think, Bobby, that's very interesting what you're saying there, because, you know, I think the same has to be really true in the corporate sense as well, of looking after your employees and, and, and trying to help them reduce the distractions, because it's probably, you know, relevant for everybody. Um, so I, I love what you're, you're saying there. You know, I, and I want to go back to what you were just talking about there around helping a player improve their performance and maximize their potential. This is something that I find is a real challenge for a lot of leaders in the corporate world, how to get the best out of somebody, how to give them that tough feedback. Cause you, you talked about that with conflict. It's not always a, a nice, happy message. You talked about, you know, Hey, you have a, you have a bad loss and you know, the manager's not happy. I'm curious, you know, what did you learn from the sports side that you think business leaders could really benefit from in terms of giving performance feedback and helping their team members fulfill their potential? Well, we, we, we had, you know, the benefit of, of our own evaluations, the benefit of our, our, our coaching staff's evaluations, our scout evaluations. We also had the benefit of, of the latest and greatest technology that allowed sure. us to give real numbers behind those evaluations. And, and it's easy to triangulate and say, you know, I think you're a great player, but these numbers are telling a different story here. Mm. We love, we love you, but the scouts are telling us this and it's easy to, to, to fall into that temptation, you know, to triangulate, but you know, the more you can be honest with them and, and, and share, you know, the, you know, the opinions and the facts uh, in many ways, you know, a lot of the technology today tells a story about a player's performance that, yeah. you know, sometimes are very hard to hear because the player feels good at the plate. He knows he's, he's getting his at bats. He knows he's made some, had some big hits, but yet you can see the trend line. You know, he's, he's struggling to hit a fastball. You can see mm -hmm. he's, he's swinging outside of the zone more. And there's just so many different measures now of players' performance, his range. You can, you know, we used to say, you look like you're, you've lost a step we'd say, but now you can say, well, you've actually, your range is, is six points, you know, 6.6 .6 inches below what it was a year ago. <laughs> you can, you can, you can actually show them. And so that gives opportunity for feedback. Now, when I, you talk about a business model or a front office or a, a yeah. business or corporate setting, you know, there's still, there's still uh, realities of, of creating dashboards uh, to help, to help your yeah. staff measure their performance. And you want them to have ownership of those dashboards uh, so that they can see, you know, their progress or their lack thereof. But you have to, just as much as you pour into players by, by showing them the information that's going to help them get better, you have to create those dashboards and show your staff areas of, of where they can get better. And you also need to provide resources. And whether yeah. that's pro professional coaching or whether that's, uh, you know, training seminars or continuing ed programs or, or just, you know, good books to read or working, working alongside them, you know, as a boss, you know, being a coach in a sense yourself, um, you know, peer, peer, a lot of the improvement on the field happens, not just from coaches to players, but it happens player to player. I mean, players, oh, right. yeah. players see things in each other that they know, 
that could help the other player. And same thing has to happen in a business setting. I mean, peer to peer, I mean, you need, you know, directors to, to try to sharpen each other and, and, and administrators to, to sharpen each other to make sure that everyone's getting the most out of their ability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's really important. And there's a few things you talked about there that I, I think are key. I mean, certainly being really clear on what good performance is and what you know, outcomes we're expecting. And as you mentioned, then getting feedback. I think that's that's great. I say to leaders that a key leadership secret is be open to feedback, get feedback all the time because you'll get better. And research says that people will see you as a more competent leader. It's almost counterintuitive. You know, people often don't want to hear it. So that's, that's actually great that there's so many parallels there. Yeah, I'd love to talk about your story here. You talked a little bit about, you know, your journey just a little bit earlier. You started out wanting to be a player. And I, I sort of take away that was your original passion. Tell me about that journey and what really kept you going? Because I know you got a few rejections and, you know, it'd have been easy for you to say, well, I'm not going to be in baseball. I'm going to go do something else. But, uh, you know, you stuck at it. And I, I got to say, I'm incredibly impressed that you, you kind of started at the bottom in the industry, the business of baseball and worked your way up to the top. I'd love to hear about that journey. Yeah, well, yeah, I was. I, I just love the game, and, and in fact, I have uh, probably one of the most momentous moments of my time as a child watching baseball. You know, Carlton Fisk's game seven. I'm sorry, game six home run in the twelfth inning at Fenway, uh, game six of the World Series. And uh, you know, I just love the game. I love you know all sports, but baseball just had a special place in, in mm -hmm. my heart. In fact, I think I got it from my parents. They went to a doubleheader on their honeymoon, so okay. they, they were they were pretty passionate about the game as well. You know, I, I was, you know, I was living in Massachusetts when I first played the game, uh, first played my first peanut league team. And I think we went nine and one and won the championship and All celebrated right. with, with pizza. Um, and when I moved to North Carolina, I, you know, just, I, I played the game all the way through high school. I, I assumed that I could pick where I wanted to go to college. And then just like, you know, you you'd go to the, go to the first tryout and you'd make the team and play. I didn't, I, I didn't really understand what division one baseball meant. And so I, it was, I was probably, you know, three or four practices into the tryout camp before I got cut. And I, 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 I saw my name on the board and I, you know, I, I naively didn't expect to see my name on the board as being cut. So I went into the coach's office and, you know, just asked for explanation, what his thoughts were, his evaluation, his assessment. And he gave me the, the, the greatest answer. He, he said, you're just, you're too average in every category. And I have to say, that's a very tempting thing to tell people now is when I, when I mm -hmm. come across players and we have to give them the hard news is to say, you're, you're too average in too many categories. And I think he was being kind. I think I was probably well below average in some categories, but he called me average. But I said, well, is there any way I could, could somehow, you know, stay with the team in some capacity? And he was kind enough to make me a student manager my freshman year. Uh, which was great experience, but it was tough on my grades because it really is like, like a 40 hour full-time job yeah, to be, yeah. a, to be a, a, an athlete, much less a student manager on a, on a team. And so uh, by the time that summer came, I, I was uh, working for a, I was doing an internship in Orange County, Florida that summer. And I 
I got a, a tryout and, and made the Daytona Beach Dodger team in the Central Florida Summer Baseball League. And, and, I, and as I played every day or three or four times a week down there, I, I realized my skills were going south in a hurry. And so when I came back to school, I told the coach I, I couldn't be a student manager. I needed to keep playing. And I was going to continue to have the hope that yeah. you know, my, my body would grow, my strength would grow, and my opportunity would grow. So I played club baseball. But one summer before my junior year, I got an internship with the Red Sox. And it was, you know, it was like I had to pinch myself to, to see myself, you know, walk, drive into Fenway Park every day for work. And, you know, they, they allowed me to do a lot of things in player development and scouting. In fact, the, the scouting director at the time, Eddie Casco, was a real inspiration for me during that internship. And he just passed away a couple of weeks ago, um, 87 years old. But you know, it was a great experience, but it opened my eyes. I didn't realize there were so many opportunities in baseball that weren't on the field. And so, yeah. so when I graduated, I just pursued jobs in baseball and I ended up, you know, taking a, a position in the commissioner's office in New York. And it, it gave me a chance to view, you know, the perspective of all teams, but a great experience in the commissioner's office. Faye Vincent was the commissioner that when I got there and Bud Selig was the commissioner when I left there and, and, and when I went to the Giants. And you know, started an administrative role with the Giants and uh, Tony Siegel and Brian Sabian hired me to come join the Giants and Bob Quinn was his general manager. And I just, I think about a year into my time there, Tony Siegel left to go to the Rockies, which kind of gave me an elevated opportunity as a 25 year old to really take on, you know, a predominant number of the assistant GM duties. Yeah. Um, and then they eventually hired uh, Ned Coletti as the assistant GM, but you know, Ned was kind enough to allow me to hold on to most of those assistant GM duties. Um, and so by the time Ned left to go to the Dodgers, there wasn't that much more that I wasn't already doing. So it gave me the opportunity to start doing all of the major league contracts. And so when I became GM after we'd won those three World Series, it was, you know, it was just a long journey from, you know, yeah. the, the, the student manager at North Carolina to the GM <laughs> of the Giants. And when that tenure ended after four years as GM, I I look back with great admiration to, to Brian and to our own, our team president, Larry Bear and ownership, you know, for the opportunity, it was, it was 25 great years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now I just sort of look at what, what the next opportunity will look like, but you have a lot of, a lot to be thankful for, for those, for those years there. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I love that story. And I think one of the things that jumps out for me is, you know, you had to roll up your sleeves and be willing to really work hard and, you know, certainly follow your dreams there, but be willing to, you know, not start, aim to start at the top. One of the things I see in some, you know, young recruits these days is they want to progress really, really fast and they expect to be at the top in two or three years. And I think your story there says, yeah, you can be patient, you just work at it, work hard do a good job, do what's asked, and you can get there. And, you know, and I was really impressed that how your the person before you was helping to groom you for that, for that role, because, uh, yeah, I think every leader, that's one of their key roles to bring the next person along. So, so kudos there. Yeah. Um, I, I think yeah. that, you know, just enjoyed, always enjoyed the job I had, you know, I yeah. didn't always worry about the next job, you know, tried to enjoy and work hard in the job I had and, and not get too focused on what's next. And I think that, you know, that, that mentality was kind of throughout the organization and it, it, it made us more ambitious for the success of the club and, gotcha. and less worried about the, the ambition of our own personal success. So it was, it was a great environment, you know, to which to, to work. 
yeah, I love that philosophy of if you're, if you're doing a good job and, you know, doing the right things, your career will take care of itself. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, awesome. So you talked about the fact that, you know, you've now moved on from, from being the, the GM at the Giants. Um, what's ahead for you? I'm sure that ambition is still there and I'm curious about what, what you see ahead. Well, my passion is to be back in the being part of a baseball operations department. I, I love uh, every aspect of what we do, you know, from the amateur draft, player development, international scouting, building a major league club and roster and working with a major league staff and a player development staff and pouring into the young guys and the veterans and and, and a front office with the one, one goal in mind to, to win as much as possible and hopefully win it all. And so as I've talked to teams and have interviewed with a number of teams uh, for different capacities, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a learning process to be in transition. It takes a, a backbone and a, and a level of patience that, it, you know, it's a new, new kind of challenge, but, but it's as challenging as it's been, it's been enriching. And, you know, you know, getting a chance to, to assist, you know, the commissioner's office on a project last year, you know, currently working with a founder of a company, uh, to, to grow his leadership and his management team and his strategic growth values of his company here in the Bay Area, as well as you know, working with a, a local, well, it's a, it's a holding company, building a, a portfolio of baseball-related companies mm-hmm. and vetting those companies, uh, vetting the tech that these companies have or vetting the event space or the amateur baseball market that they are trying to grow, consulting with a, with a startup, a baseball tech company that is trying to, you know, elevate its presence in the market. I mean, I've just learned so much from really great baseball people, but really great business leaders. And, and so I, I've always been one who enjoyed learning, but this is, you know, definitely diversifying my learning curve and, and challenging, you know, my leadership experience and uh, management skills, as well as, uh, you know, learning from a lot of good people. Yeah. Well, from what you shared and, you know, your success, I think any organization, not just baseball, but the examples you've used, any organization would be lucky to have you and benefit from your, from your talents and your perspective. I mean, that's, that's very, very clear. Thanks, Um, Andy. Yeah, sure. You talked about transitions and you just sort of sparked another thought for me here that I know in professional sports, I mean, I'm a big soccer nut. So I grew up in England. So that's really my game, you know, a bit of cricket. So baseball's I'm, I'm coming to terms with it. I'm, 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 I'm learning, but I think in all professional sports for professional sports people, there's that challenge of they're at the top of their game and then they have a finite career. And then that can be really tough. That transition out of the game what advice do you have for professional athletes in terms of finding their next career? Well, it's a, it's a conversation I've had with many, 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 many players over the years who are transitioning. And, you know, oftentimes I'm talking to players about, you know, opportunities in the game, whether they want to be scouting or, or player development or get into a major league role. Because uh, they've got so much experience in the game, they're a great asset to the game, and they can be, you know, in, an, in, in a critical position, you know, very quickly if they so choose to pursue that. Yeah. But I think I think that while you know while there's so much there's so much pressure on the time of a player, from the time he signs to to push his way to to a forty man roster, and then ultimately to push his way into an everyday lineup or an everyday 
part of the rotation or bullpen on a major league club, there's still, and there's a, then there's the balance of family and responsibility and community, sure. community obligations and using the platform that they have to, to make a difference in their communities. There, there's still an importance to always have an, an eye towards the future. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, that can come in the form of, you know, other interests that you have. I mean, I've, I'm, I've always admired some players who they, they know early in their career, what they're going to do when their career is over. They just have a, such a passion for music or just such a passion for, for sports or, or such a passion for um, industry of some sort and finance or cars or, uh, and I and I've just I've I've really admired these players who have just know know early on and and, it, and they they've lived out those dreams after their career. I've watched them. It's it's impressive. But not everybody has that. Part of that is because everybody's so focused on their baseball side yeah. of their career and balancing family and community that they forget they have to have an eye on the future and and make sure that there's clear purpose in what they're doing. And so I think just exploring, uh, using you know using whatever fragment of time that you can to be to be developing other passions and other yeah. visions for your future after baseball is it's it's healthy it's 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 healthy for them and 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 many of them hopefully will will end up staying in the game but you know for those that don't they 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 should pursue those other passions and uh and i'm i'm spending some time right now with with a a former player uh every week doing some executive coaching helping right. him develop you know, his executive skills to transfer from baseball into an executive leadership role with a, with a startup that he's building, uh, you know, in the baseball, in the baseball uh, world. And uh, it's not all that different from baseball, but you have to really re-envision, you know, yourself, you know, from being on the field to being, you know, an executive. And and I think he's catching on quickly, uh, but, but I think that, finding people to, to, that can mentor you and coach you and help you and impact, you know, your vision for your future is, is key. And I've, I've, I've been blessed with a, with a good mentor who's invested in me on a regular basis, you know, really for the last 15 plus years. And I'm, so I'm a product of, of good mentoring and, you know, and I think it's important to always find a, a good mentor for your professional and personal life. Well, well, clearly your mentor did a great job uh, and you know, and again, great advice for any leader that you've got to be bringing the people on around you and, and really helping them sort of help to understand where they want to take their career. So fantastic. I have one last question for you. Yeah. So I can imagine there are lots of young people out there, maybe kids or people in you know, kids playing sports who are super excited and they're looking ahead and going, wow, I, I really want a career in sports. What advice would you, would you give them? Yeah, I just, just don't be too quick to take no for an answer and, ah. and give the game your best every day. I think about the advice my dad gave me when I was going to college. He said, you know, there's a, a graduation speech where it talked about um, a lot of different advice for, for college graduates. And one of the pieces of it, advice was, you know, make sure you live in a big city, work in a big company, you know, don't get married too young and a lot of different advice, advice. But the, the piece of advice that my dad wanted me to pay attention to the most was a piece of advice that was one day your boss is going to come to you and he's going he's gonna to want a white elephant. And you want, you want to be the kind of worker 
that your boss knows that when he asks you for a white elephant, he knows that the next time he sees you, he better have a big barrel of elephant feed because you're going to be mm. there with that white elephant. And you want to be trusted that much. Yeah. That translates to, to the, to, to your future, you know, in career. In fact, I've spent a lot of my career looking for, you know, what my boss's white elephant was so that I could try to deliver on that. But, but right now as an athlete, you know, what is, what is your coach looking for you to do? And, and that, that can be the pursuit of the white elephant for you. If that's, if that's, you know, trying a new position or if it's, if it's, you know, working on skills that right now where you're, you're not as proficient, you know, in the weight room, you know, extra batting practice, extra free throws, extra field goals, extra passes, whatever it is, you know, make sure that you're not leaving anything undone because your window is only so big and take mm-hmm. advantage of that window, give it everything you've got um, and, and don't have regrets. I look at athletes, a lot of times they don't advance because they see their limitations. But, but athletes need to, as, as, as smart as they need to be about their abilities and reasonable about their abilities, they also need to remember, as the athlete, don't try to be the scout. Don't try to be the general manager. Don't try to be the coach. Your job is to be the player. Let, yeah. the, let the evaluators evaluate you and let the coaches coach you. You be the player and be the best that you can be. And don't spend too much time second-guessing your ability or doubting yourself. Give it all you've got. Wow. Well, I got to say, Bobby, this is terrific advice. And, you know, from my perspective, coming from the corporate leadership world, and this translates perfectly. So really appreciate everything you've shared here. And I, I got to say, I, I, I'm excited about hearing what's ahead for you. And, and as I mentioned, gosh, you've just got so much tremendous uh, experience uh, and wisdom to share that I'm really looking forward to seeing what's ahead. And I appreciate your time this afternoon. Uh, This has been great insights. Great to be with you, Andy. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. To learn more about Bobby Evans and the San Francisco Giants, check out the links in the show notes from this episode. And to listen to other leaders talking about how they got to where they are today and the steps along the way, go to oyster.team forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to this show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and leadership is no accident.